What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So I think being open to ambiguity and you know remaining curious and always having big ears and, and listening and trying to understand how the world's changing and where things are going and really what the unsolved problems are. Companies exist, if they're successful, to solve the unsolved future problems that customers have. And if they're successful doing that, they'll grow and they'll thrive. And if they don't, they'll go out of business, right? <laughs> Just the way it works. And so having that as a deep understanding and not taking anything for granted <laughs> about your success has always uh, helped me a lot. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Ligorio Chafkin. Today's episode A New Way to Think About Risk. Today's guest, one of America's best known entrepreneurs, is a master of reinvention. That's not to say he's a total chameleon, he's still in the same industry and really running the same company at age 56 that he started out of his University of Texas freshman dorm room. But he has helped his company transform multiple times and withstand multiple would-be crises by doing so. He's Dell Technologies founder, Michael Dell. He's also the author of Play Nice But Win, his new book that outlines some of the leadership philosophies and traits that make up Dell's culture, which we'll talk about in our interview today. But before founding Dell, growing it and taking it public, going private again and becoming public again, Michael Dell grew up in Texas and always had a knack for sales. When I was about 12 years old, I created a, a stamp auction and made a couple thousand dollars, which back in um, the 1970s, that was a fair amount of money. <laughs> and to me, it was just a fun thing to do. And, you know, it was like solving a puzzle. Yeah, it started from there. And, and as I described in the book, I had lots of various uh, things I did as I was a little kid uh, through my adolescent years and then, you know, starting the business in my dorm room. My freshman dorm room. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. So before the dorm room, there's this sort of legendary story um, that teachers in your school learned that you were making more than they did. Uh, I believe this was in, in still in high school. Uh, is that right? Yeah, this was sort of by accident. I mean, I wasn't going around telling anybody how much money I was making, but <laughs> I got this job after I could drive when I you know turned 16, my parents kind of let me use the old uh, station wagon. <laughs> and, and so the, the available job opportunities expanded pretty significantly, you know, beyond places I could kind of ride my bike. And I, I got this job at one of the big newspapers in town, the Houston Post, which is now part of the Houston Chronicle. And my job was to call basically random people and try to sell them the newspaper. Anyway, I figured out 
a few things along the way and ended up making like $18,000 selling lots of newspaper subscriptions. <laughs> and in my government and economics class, the teacher gave us an assignment. Teacher didn't really like me anyway, because I was sort of sitting in the back of the room reading computer magazines all the time. And the assignment was to fill out our tax return, which I did and turned it in. And turns out uh, I made uh, more income than she made that, that year. <laughs> and she was none too pleased, I'm guessing. <laughs> she was not too pleased. I mean, she she actually sort of paraded my, my assignment in front of the class as if I'd made a big mistake <laughs> because she was excited by that because, you know, I wasn't really paying attention in class and still did pretty well. At one point, she called my dad and, and said, uh, you know, hey, Michael's not paying attention in class. And my dad had had such calls before. <laughs> and uh, he, he basically said, uh, well, why don't you give him a test? And then if he doesn't do well, call me back. And she never, never called him back. Wow. So she didn't really like all that. <laughs> sure. By college, fast forward a few years, you were, you know, known for sort of hiding parts of your computer business, like in the bathroom. What was the kind of seeds of Dell and and what was college like for you? What was the college experience while building business? Right. So I started out at the University of Texas in Austin as a freshman on a pre-med course. And at the same time, I was upgrading IBM personal computers and had this sort of little booming business in my in my dorm room. And, you know, my parents uh, heard about it kind of through the grapevine and would show up unannounced a few times. And, you know, the first couple of times I was able to hide it. Uh, <laughs> uh, one point they said, well, where are your books? And I, you know, like, uh oh, you know, book my books. They're at the library. I, I studied at the library. So got away with it a few times, but ultimately they sort of figured out that I was uh, operating this kind of thriving business. But yeah, that was the origins of the company. And uh, you know, ultimately I decided to, to drop out, start the company a week or two before I finished my freshman uh, semester at, at, at UT is when the company was incorporated. Wow, that's incredible. So in those first few years of building the company that followed, was there an inflection point that stays in your mind or that that you think back to that signaled like this is real, this is going to be a company that's going to be, you know, whatever marker in your mind at the time, that the next decade of my life, the the rest of my life. This is going to be big. Yeah, you know, there were so many markers. I could generally see forward to how we might grow the business by 10x or sometimes 25x as it obviously got into many billions that got to be a bit trickier. You could sort of see how you could double it or triple it. But yeah, I remember in the late 80s, you know, going to see some of the biggest companies in the world, you know, like not the Fortune 500, but like the Fortune 10, you know, <laughs> and uh, they had giant buildings filled with our computers. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, okay, this is pretty cool. <laughs> we're, we're doing something uh, really important here. And, you know, it was kind of obvious in the sense that in the first eight years, the company grew 80% a year compounded. 
And in the six years after that, it grew 60% compounded. Uh, so kind of any number you start with, you put that in your calculator, you get tens of billions of dollars, which is what we had in revenue. So, uh, you know, the signals were pretty clear, even though there were all kinds of mistakes and disasters and catastrophes along the way, lessons learned that proved to be incredibly valuable and led us mostly to a lot greater success in the future. It was an enormous amount of fun and still is. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. You mentioned the Fortune 500 here at Inc. We tend to think in terms of the Inc. 5000, um, which are the fastest growing companies oh, yes. in, the, yes. <laughs> in the U.S., a list on which you've appeared on and you've been in the pages of Inc. many times over the years. Do you remember the first time you made the Inc. 500 or 5000 at all? Well, I remember a really cool moment in 1989 and my wife and I had just gotten married, and I re remember this because the folks at Inc. wanted me to appear in their magazine. I didn't know where in the magazine. It turned out they put me on the cover, and uh, they wanted me to wear a tuxedo. And lucky for me, I'd just gotten married. Uh, so um, I had a tuxedo <laughs> and not a rented one. And, uh, and so that was actually the first Inc. magazine Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Oh, cool. I was 24 years old and had the great honor to uh, get that award. And it was super fun and uh, certainly something I will never forget. That was quite some time ago, but your Entrepreneur of the Year Award has gone on to be, uh, you know, something, uh, you know, all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. And at times we call it Company of the Year now. Who would your nominee this year be for Company of the Year? Hmm. Well, I'd have to see. Uh, I'd have to think about that. It's a hard one, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's interesting now is not only is there so much risk capital that's going into new ventures, but they're going after much harder problems. And you just see the role of technology showing up in so many different industries. So many sectors are being upended and reinvented and reimagined. I think it's just a very exciting time for, you know, entrepreneurs to be around. Yeah. And I mean, as you've noted in the past and in your book, even technology is sort of being upended. So we'll get to that. But, uh, you know, let me say that one of the reasons, Michael, that you're here talking to me today is because you are the author of a new book, Play Nice But Win. It tells the story of three battles that were transformative for Dell Technologies to launch it, to keep it, and then one to transform it. So I'm curious to talk to you about the book a little bit more. Um, there's so much of your own story in it that you hadn't told before. What was the process of coming to write the book and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I'd written a book before in the late 90s, but this book is way more personal. And after we did the go private, you know, we bought back all the shares from the public shareholders and accelerated the transformation. It was the biggest go private ever in technology. And then on the heels of that, uh, not that much longer afterwards, we did the largest merger acquisition ever in technology. All of that, you know, over the last decade, many, many friends encouraged me to write a book about all of that. And I also feel a lot more comfortable now kind of disclosing, uh, you know, my feelings and my thoughts more transparently. And, you know, hopefully uh, people will, will draw some great lessons from that. You know, there are plenty of uh, lessons along the way. And I, 
I end the book with 21 things that I learned and beliefs. And there are certainly things that are kind of core to my fabric. And I think the fabric of how we operate at Dell. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, one of the kind of uh, core reasons for this podcast existence is uh, lessons from entrepreneurs. <laughs> so you have 21 or, or more in the book, but what is one that would maybe be surprising for folks that you you learned and like to share? You know, I talk a lot in the book about learning and curiosity, and some people talk about that, but I think it's probably underrated as a skill. And it's certainly been super valuable to me. So I think being open to ambiguity and, you know, remaining curious and always having big ears and and listening and trying to understand how the world's changing and where things are going and really what the unsolved problems are. Companies exist, if they're successful, to solve the unsolved future problems that customers have. And if they're successful doing that, they'll grow and they'll thrive. And if they don't, they'll go out of business, right? (laughs) Just the way it works. And so having that uh, as as a deep understanding and not taking anything for granted (laughs) about your success has always uh, helped me a lot. When we come back, I'll talk with Michael about his own transformation as a leader. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Yeah, I love that you say ambiguity and, and, and embracing the ambiguity sometimes. Uh, I think that's a really kind of core tenet to curiosity and to learning and growing uh, that is definitely underappreciated, right? Because I think strong leaders are often seen as really decisive and really like, let's go forward, let's pick the path, let's take it. But really, there are times when there are are unknowns that kind of outweigh the importance of which outweigh the knowns, right? Can you talk a little bit more about that and a time maybe during the company's history that ambiguity has been important? Yeah. So the leader has to show the way, even if he or she doesn't know what it is, right? <laughs> and it, you know that's one of the paradoxes of, of leadership. But when you're in a field where everything is new and changing. Nobody knows. It's not like you haven't figured it out. It's just uh, there's a lot to be discovered. So you have to experiment and learn and fail. And then ultimately, you can create some success. And I think another thing that people might draw from the book, hopefully, is a greater appreciation for risk-taking. I think a lot of human potential is left on the table because people are looking for low-risk ways of doing things, or they're too afraid to fail and kind of looking for the perfect answer. And turns out it doesn't exist, right? And so taking more risks, certainly I've taken plenty in in my life and it's worked out, but they've been calculated and, and thoughtful and 
we've learned from all the risks that we've taken, and that's you know ultimately helped us. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the biggest risk you've taken in your career? You know, risk is is interesting because when people hear the word risk, they think, "Ooh, that's bad." Like you know, risk reduction, risk management. Companies have entire risk divisions, right, where they're trying to make risk go away. I understand all that. You know, having appropriate controls is important, but I actually think of risk differently in the sense that it's a good thing. And if you're not taking any risk, you're doing it wrong. What might seem like a risk to one person uh, might not seem like much of a risk to me. Like, you know, dropping out of college didn't feel like a big risk to me. You know, could go right back to college if it didn't work out. Taking on $50 billion in debt (laughs) to buy uh, EMC and VMware. Yeah, it was a risk, but you know, given the cash flows as a company and given the opportunity that we saw, it felt like an incredible opportunity. And given the enormous savings glut in the world and the continual trend in reduction in interest rates, you know, we felt very comfortable with our capital structure. And that's proven itself out over time as our uh, investors have seen. And now we had a two-notch upgrade from S&P back to investment grade recently. So we've paid off an enormous amount of that debt. So uh, everyone will interpret risk differently. Was there a decision that felt more risky to you that caused you more sort of strain or or more, uh, it took more time for you to actually, you know, decide what to do maybe due to it being, you know, personally risky for you? Certainly the go private, and the mega acquisition merger that we did, those were highly considered decisions, you know, where I spent quite a lot of time thinking about the pros and cons and what could work and what could go wrong. And what if this happened or that happened? And those weren't snap decisions at all. You know, these are the ultimate considered decisions that you think very carefully about. But you're also doing it in a bit of a vacuum because you can't really talk to a whole lot of people about this, right? I could talk to my wife, Susan, uh, and, uh, you know, maybe a a lawyer or two, you know, uh, or, you know, a few other people, insiders inside the business. But these are such monumental transactions that, you know, it has to be kept super secretive. Yeah. Tell me more about the the go private and what made up your mind there. Uh, And, I mean, it seems like such a huge decision and such a huge move, obviously, being one of the biggest uh, go-privates in, I don't know, tech company history, or if not the biggest. Uh, what was that like for you in, in the time leading up to it? So the company was uh, evolving, and we had invested a lot more in new areas like software and cloud and security And the market wasn't buying it and wasn't really giving the company a lot of room to transform. And the more we made new acquisitions and investments in these new areas, the less the market liked it. And our stock price was going down. And at the same time, there was this narrative that the smartphone and the tablet were going to take over the world of computing. And you wouldn't need a PC anymore. And, you know, therefore, Dell was irrelevant and dead. <laughs> and so 
all of that was pretty sad, right, and, and disappointing. But ultimately, it created this silver lining where the shareholders kind of abandoned the company, didn't really believe in it, and we could, with debt, buy back all the shares of the company in a go private, giving the shareholders some of the potential benefit of our transformation if it was successful, without taking on any of the risk. And you know, shareholders ultimately voted for that. And that enabled us to just slam on the accelerator of the transformation because we weren't focused on the quarterly earnings. And we hired thousands of R&D engineers, thousands of additional salespeople, and it started working quickly. I mean, our results were volatile, but they were volatile in the upward direction. And you know, within 18 months of the go private, we had our net debt was zero, which was amazing for a go private of that size. And that was definitely a big decision and one that I considered super carefully. And then the next one uh, was even more, right? The, the acquisition merger with EMC and VMware, we kind of tripled or quadrupled down here. We put all the equity that we had from the company into this new transaction, took on about $50 billion of debt and created a world-leading company. And we thought that there would be revenue synergies. We thought that when we went to customers and we could bring them the number one in everything, all in one place in cloud infrastructure and that customers would like it. And we were right, but it turns out there was much more than that. You know, we thought there'd be a few billion in revenue synergies. It's been more than 30 billion in organic growth since the combination. So customers really responded well. We paid down debt. But yeah, I mean, certainly during those periods, it looked quite risky. Uh, you know, there were lots of nervous folks running around. Uh, saying it's not going to work. Our competitors, to be sure, said all of that, but uh, it wasn't to be, and uh, it's all worked out well. But it could have gone wrong too. I mean, let's let's not gloss over that, right? We were taking on some fairly monumental things, and we could have just as well screwed it up. You just laid out some of the benefits of being private versus public. Do you think that companies right now are going public too early in their lifespans? Um, this trend in SPACs certainly seems to accelerate things for companies over the past uh, you know, year or two. What do you think is going on right now? And what have you learned about that benefit of being private versus public? So, you know, our company is pretty different from a lot of the companies going public now in the sense that we were profitable in our first quarter of operations. <laughs> Not the first quarter being public, the first quarter of operations right out of my dorm room. And, and we were profitable when we went public. But of course, that was you know back in the 80s, very different time. I think being public is certainly a great way to access capital. But if you don't need to do it, you probably should think about waiting and getting the company to a more mature place. But look, there are some really great companies you know, coming public right now. And the public markets have also taken on a bit of the role of venture capitalists in financing a lot of these new exciting growth ventures. And ultimately, you know, having more options for companies to 
access capital for growth, whether it's through high quality SPACs or, or other mechanisms, I think is a good thing. So your book is not just about Dell Technologies transformation. It's also about your own transformation. Part of the title says, you know, from a founder to a leader. What is your definition of the difference there? And how have you grown over the years as a leader? I know that's a big question. <laughs> I know there's probably 20 different ways you could answer that. But let's talk a little bit about that difference between founder and leader and how to get there. Well, it's easy to be a founder, right? You just start something, right? Um, but you know, becoming a, a leader, you know, you really have to learn how to do that and probably had some natural instincts, but I'd never run, a, you know, a, a company before, much less, you know, a company with 150,000 people and over $100 billion in revenue. So I learned by making mistakes and gradually and surrounded myself with the most talented people I could. And I would say learned those skills gradually and intentionally as well. Uh, you know, I, I sought out to learn from others and understood that a leader is not just somebody who's in charge, but somebody that other people want to follow and you know, really kind of inspires passion and enables people to achieve their full potential and really cares deeply about not only the things that the organization is doing, but the people themselves and, you know, helping them to be successful. And as I matured and, you know, got married and had children, I gained a greater appreciation for how everybody else, uh, you know, <laughs> is dealing with challenges in their life. Before I had children of my own, I, you know, really didn't have a great appreciation for that. So it was a pretty gradual process. And again, uh, really fortunate to I've had a lot of great people along the way that have helped me. I talk about many of them in the book. Great. What would your advice be for someone who hears that phrase, be someone who people want to follow, to actually become that? Are there ways to make yourself a kind of a better, inspiring leader? I think it's actually a great definition of leadership because ultimately, if no one follows you, uh, you're not a leader. Right. <laughs> to state the obvious, but it's deeper than that, right? Because you can be in charge and not have everybody follow you, right? <laughs> and still, you might be called a leader, right? And so the real distinction here is the deep understanding of what does it take to really understand everybody's motivations. Engineers are motivated differently than salespeople, than finance people, than legal people, et cetera. And so kind of understanding everybody's psyche and what gets them motivated and how you can create this idea inside the organization that what we're doing is really important and really matters and inspire passion, which is way more powerful than sort of any other force you can unleash as people believe that they're on this important mission. That's kind of how I think about it. And certainly there, there, there are ways to measure it we have an extensive process inside Dell called Tell Dell that we've used for decades now. And it gives us a great ability to understand how our leaders are doing in taking care of the team members that work for them. And we can see those that are doing a great job and the few that maybe aren't, we can also see that. And you can be sure we're not promoting them 
and we're we're helping them learn how to do it better. And you know, if they can't learn after a while, we'll ask them to go go work somewhere else. Michael, is there something you can think of from your decades growing the company that you've changed your mind about? Yeah, you know, when I was younger, I would say it was easier for me to uh, get angry. <laughs> and uh, I didn't really understand how counterproductive that was. Now, kind of processing the emotion, I understand that that's not really a very helpful emotion at all. And being motivated by a desire to help others is much more powerful to focus on love and family and, you know, mastery and doing something important is way more important. So yeah, you might get angry, but don't stay angry. Yeah. That feels like such a natural, it's something that we, we kind of learn as we age. Right. But was there a moment that, yeah. 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 Is it, was there a moment that that came to a head for you or that you realized like, this is something I, I need to work on? Well, you know, it's such an important lesson. I, I don't think I could have learned it in a flash, right? If you sort of had to learn, learn it by making mistakes and, and uh, seeing the error of my ways and gradually figuring out that there's a better approach. Michael, when we started talking, you mentioned the future of business, the future of computing. Can you talk a little bit about the next digital transformation and what you think other business owners should know about the future of both business and technology? Sure. You know, I think the last several decades, there's been incredible progress. Yet, you know, the way I think about this is that's all the pre-game show for what's about to come. You know, we're now entering into this world where everything in the physical world is becoming intelligent and connected. And that's creating an enormous amount of data. The world's becoming a wash in data. And the real challenge for organizations is to turn that data into useful insights and outcomes and competitive advantage. And obviously, that involves lots of new capabilities and artificial intelligence, machine learning, the 5G networks, which are just you know, showing up now, are not so much about us talking on the phone faster to each other, but machine-to-machine communications. And All of that, I think, is going to create an incredible set of opportunities and an incredible future and certainly uh, great opportunities for our company. Thank you so much, Michael Dell, for having this conversation with me today. Great to be with you. Thank you. Speaking with Michael, I was first fascinated by the high stakes of some of the transitions he led Dell through, including taking on $50 billion in debt and shepherding the company he created from a dorm room out of the public markets. But what will probably stick with me longer is something small he said when we were talking about leadership. He was explaining some of the core leadership principles and traits that make Dell tick. He listed curiosity, having open ears, and being open to ambiguity. That surprised me a bit. It's something I think a lot of us overlook. That ambiguity, he phrased it as a paradox of leadership. Because as a leader, you might not always know the right answer, but you have to lead through it anyway. Embracing ambiguity is also just a really healthy sign of keeping an open mind and being willing to research when you don't have enough information to make a decision. 
or just take a deep breath and wait. Not everything in this world is clean cut. And we have to remember that, even when work keeps moving. That's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend who would love our show, please send them a link to your favorite episode. And if you have ideas for founders you'd love to hear from on the show, drop us a note at whatiknowatinc.com. Our producer, who still doesn't make more than his grade school teachers, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.